Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. So glad you could be with me because tonight's really going to be exciting. Um, first, though, um, um, thank Ken Quiet Hawk for his amazing intro, uh, and 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 encourage everybody to check him out after the show. Of course, um, he and his wife are continuing the the tradition of Native storytelling, and it's it's an amazing way of preserving history and cosmology and passing down generation after generation after generation of, of stories that tell, tell the evolution of a tribe, a people, and a way of life that is spectacular. So that said, um, I, I, tonight I've got um, Edward Makowski on the show, and we're going to get, you know, we're very, very fortunate because he has written a new book, well, I, I, I guess I, I have to put that kind of in the in the present and and um, future state. He is he's written most of it, and and I have the honor of reading a great deal of it. And he's tying it up, and it will be published sometime next year. And it's it's titled tentatively Ancient Egypt, thirteen thousand BC, um, and it's it's a very exciting new take on old information that has not been um that has not been translated appropriately and and at this time the manuscript is nearly finished although you know given time he can probably write a couple of more books on top of this one and put them all together into one if anybody could lift it the topic is is how myth has defined many things in our society and that myth in fact is really in actuality, history, with the advances of plasma physics, a whole new understanding of our ancient past has come into the light, literally. And the mythical stories about the sun and the planets are in fact true. He puts forth the textual evidence that not only was the solar system unstable before the 6th century BCE, but that the ancient Egyptians actually witnessed and recorded the birth of the solar system, which is absolutely phenomenal. 
He's had a lifelong interest in history, particularly ancient history, with a special interest in philosophy and the development of religious beliefs from ancient to modern times. With the opinion that the ancient biblical stories in Genesis were based on historical fact, during the late 1990s, he began investigating such a possibility, which led to his first book, Sons of God, Daughters of Men, and that led to a deep interest in the origin of civilization and curiously large monuments of Egypt's own old kingdom, particularly the Sphinx, and the influence of Egyptian philosophy and culture exerted in the ancient world. Two more books were then the result before the pharaohs and the spiritual technology of ancient Egypt, plus several more following that same line of adventure. He's really quite a an adventure an adventurer in uncovering evidence that brings truth to the surface in a very unique and different way. His professional background is finance and business administration, and he's also a software developer with interest in business strategy and philosophy as it relates to the advancement of technology. He covers a lot of different bases, but he does it thoroughly. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you, Barbara. It's good to be back. Oh, it's such a pleasure because um, you're you're covering material that has been a, a, a lifelong fascination of mine, but I haven't done the, the digging you've done. I'm very grateful for all of the work and and, and the uh, material that you're bringing forward. And I just, I think it's time. It does feel as though there is a whole new paradigm that is beginning to be born and it's amazing to watch it as as people like you do this research into especially the mythology and and find i i think that it's it's so phenomenal that you're bringing forward evidence that that what what is mythology is just fact that has fallen so far into the past that we can't remember the facts that that led to the mythology itself that's absolutely true, and what has been going on is a new discipline in science called plasma physics. It's not very old. It's maybe 50 or 60 years old, 70 years old, something like that. It's a whole new branch of science, and the research they are doing and the knowledge they are, are gaining actually is pertinent to ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, all the ancient cultures, and what they were watching in the skies. And and it's really exciting because, well, it's called the Electric Universe. Just uh-huh. to give you a, a short history on the Electric Universe, the man who first discovered the electric element in, in our universe is a, a, a Swedish guy by the name of Christian Berkland. And this is going back to the very beginning of the 20th century, the early early 1900s. And he was curious about the aurora borealis. So he set up, set up uh, observation stations uh, north and actually wrote, he spent two years studying the aurora and then wrote a book about it. And he came to the conclusion through his own experiments in his own laboratory that there were electrical currents running in and out of the North and also the South Pole. And, well, guess what? Everyone said he was crazy. <laughs> and, and, and he was kind of sort of blackballed 
but other electrical engineers and physicists that had a had a, a concentration in electricity, they kept it going. There was another man by the name of Hans Alfein that kept it going, and uh, Anthony Pratt, more modern. Uh, there's been several other guys, but it's been it's been a long road for the electric universe, and they have finally arrived in these past. Oh, I don't know. I say probably 20 years, 10 years, 20 years, that they finally got to the point where they're starting to get some good press. And why they're starting to get good press is because there's two projects that I know of. One is called the Sapphire Project. This is a group of independent physicists that are doing their own experiments on the electric universe. And they have actually been able to duplicate the sun in a laboratory with electricity. And there's also the physics lab, I believe it's the University of Wisconsin at Madison, they have done the same thing. So what this science is telling us, this new science called plasma physics, it's telling us that everything in outer space, it's all electrical, and that stars in particular are electrical. There's no thermonuclear fusion going on in their core. It's all electricity. It's all superheated plasma. And that has everything to do with the myths of ancient Egypt, of the ancient Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the, Carth uh, the Carthaginians. I can't say that word very well. Uh, and just about... Yes, yes, and just about everybody else. And and but what's amazing about this is, is uh, back when I wrote uh, Ancient Egypt thirty nine thousand, I was at the point where I was going, well, you know, what am I going to write about next? <laughs> I, I I really don't, you know, I really don't know what to write about. And uh, it was uh, I think it was summer of twenty ten. Uh, a young couple came into my coffee shop, uh, and they were a really nice young couple, and we talked a lot. And he said, hey, have you ever seen that that uh, video on YouTube called Symbols of an Alien Sky? I said, no, I haven't. He says, you need to watch it. So I watched it that evening, and it totally blew me away, totally. And, and I've been working on this book. Uh, in spirit and in reality for probably 10 years now. It's just only the last last year and a half that I've actually actually have had time to write it. And and it is it is it has blown me away because my approach to the book is kind of like Michael Cremo and uh Forbidden Archaeology. It's kind of the same same approach. I wanted to go back to the original books written by the original Egyptologists and Assyriologists. The good news about that is they're free in their public domain. Uh -huh. The great news, the great news about that is they were not editorializing anything. They were just reporting what they were translating. And and what I have found in this past year and a half, it's happened probably six or seven, maybe even eight times, I'm 
looking up a reference that one author gives and tracking it down, and I find a whole new avalanche of information falling on me about another topic that's pertinent to what I'm doing. So the book for me is just taking longer and longer and longer, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But, <laughs> but yes, you're absolutely correct. M myth is history. But more importantly, myth is actually a language. That's mm -hmm. really probably the most important part. Because we have to remember, uh, 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, uh, our ancient ancestors did not have a science like we have a science today. You know, they, they didn't do experiments in a laboratory and come up with, with this idea, that idea, and do experiments and, and, you know, redefine their theory and move forward bit by bit, generation by generation. They had nothing to go on. So when they were watching the sky, seeing things happen, okay, they had to, and, and I mean this in a good way, they had to make up their own words to describe what was going on. So the only experience they had, the only benchmark they had to use to create this explanation of what's going on is their own personal human relationships they have with each other and the relationship they have with nature. That's the only things they had to use to put together a language to describe things. And that's what they did. Uh, Schwaller de Lupitz calls it functional thinking. Okay? They would describe a phenomenon by looking at an animal in nature and taking that animal and making it the concept they're trying to explain. The, the, the easiest one that I can think of to explain this quickly and simply <coughs> is the Egyptian god Thoth, who is actually, his true name is Tehuti in the actual Egyptian language. Thoth is, uh -huh. uh, is Greek. Well, as everyone knows, Thoth is the ibis bird. Kind of, kind of uh -huh. looks like a stork. Well, yeah, and everyone also knows that, that uh, uh, Thoth is the god of, of writing, of wisdom, of intelligence, okay? Well, so how can, how can the stork-like bird be wisdom and intelligence and writing? Well, the ibis bird actually lives in the Nile River along with the crocodiles, and this is how wise the bird is. Of course, there's other predators out there that want to eat the bird's eggs. So what the ibis bird does is he makes friends with the crocodiles and puts his nest near crocodile uh, dens to keep away the predators and actually found a way to live peacefully with the crocodiles. So you have to be wise in order to live with the crocodiles, this is how, this is how the, that came about. Huh. And that's the same thing with like Anubis, who is uh, the, the god of digestion. That's what he represents. Uh, the jackal can eat anything, raw, rotten meat, and he can digest <laughs> it. So, so you know, the, the jackal, Anubis, actually represents the principle of digestion. Okay, so when you see these animal heads 
on human bodies, it's that principle, that natural principle, as it applies to the human condition. So they had to put together a language to explain what was going on, and the language they put together, we now have decided, actually this was decided in 1828 by Noah Webster. Uh, he decided that myth is fiction. And since that time, uh, by and large, the mainstream uh, people, the mainstream of, of our country, of the world, you know, they think that myth is actually fiction. And it's my hope, uh, this, is, this is like the, the first chapter, the first two chapters of the book, is I'm working hard to show the people that myth is not fiction. It's actually an integral part of our society right now, and no one knows it. Just for example, the days of the week. You know, growing up, you know, I, I was born in 1961, and I grew up uh, in the old world before computers and all that stuff, and went to school, and I, I had no idea what Sunday through Monday was. I didn't have a clue. They were just the days of the week. But in truth, they are the five inner planets and the sun and the moon. Uh -huh. Some of them are really easy, like Sunday, Monday. Well, Sunday is sun day. Monday is the moon day. And then, unfortunately, Thursday through Friday, we get into the German uh, pronunciations of the planets. So it gets kind of weird. But Saturday is an easy one also. Saturn day. Saturn's day. Saturday. And then, of course, there's, uh, there's the medical industry. A lot of the medical terms come from mythology. A lot of the scientific terms come from mythology. So, so these first couple of chapters, I, I actually put forth the fact that myth is real and myth is important and it still exists in some function in our society today. And we should take it seriously and go back and start having a look at uh, exactly what it is. And I found out that myth is actually history in itself. Yeah, and I think the thing that that's so impresses me is that, and 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 this has been one of my one of my personal theories is that that back then people only had their own frame of reference to describe things. And so, so that sometimes their descriptions seemed very simplistic or strange or unique, and and yet, if you if you can put yourself in that time frame, I, I think something that that most people, I know I for a long time was guilty of too, thinking you know people in in early history or you know this this far back in time they were primitive well they weren't they were just as intelligent as we are and it's just That's they correct. were using a different frame of reference than we use and if you if you can put yourself back and realize what their frame of reference was what they're talking about makes great sense but one of the things that that blew me away was that at some point in time, Saturn was our sun. That's correct. And what's what's really fascinating about that is some big-time 
uh, Assyriologists and Egyptologists in the early 20th century picked up on that idea. They did. Uh, this guy was a professor uh, of uh, Egyptology at Penn State University. His name was Morse Jastro. And he actually wound up writing an article that was published in an academic journal. And the title of the article was uh, Saturn or Sun, the Nighttime Sun. And it's a it's a it's a it's not a huge article. It's probably about fifteen pages, but he actually steps through uh, the Assyriology and points out that the Babylonians were saying that Saturn is the nighttime sun, and that was roughly nineteen ten, and nothing else was ever said about it. How Boom. could that be buried? It's such a it's mind blowing. I can explain that. I can explain okay. that. Okay? Everyone knows who Albert Einstein is. Okay? Mm-hmm. In nineteen ten, no one knew who Albert Einstein was. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's not entirely true. Uh of course the physicists knew who Albert Einstein was. Okay? He was a Nobel Prize winner, uh for his photoelectric effect. But really, just in general, no one knew who he was. He came up with with two really new theories, and they're just theories, okay? Mm-hmm. One was the special theory of relativity. The other one was the general theory of relativity. And what he was saying, okay, was that space is not just space. Space is space-time. They're actually one and the same thing. Now, that didn't make him a celebrity, but his theory called for light to be bent because his idea was that mass actually bends space. Okay? So starlight from some far-off star five uh, light years away, coming around the sun is going to bend. All right? And that theory had never been tested. But in 1915, there was going to be a solar eclipse. And this was the time to test this theory. So two guys on different continents decided to test this theory, and then they took the photographic equipment up to their observatories, and they took uh, took plates. They didn't have film back then. There were still plates. They took plates of the solar eclipse and of, this, of, of starlight bending around it. And a couple of the pictures developed by two different guys was the proof. And when the... The, the Royal Society, the Royal Astronomical Society of Britain, when they heard the news that Einstein's uh, theory had been verified through the solar eclipse, they sent out a telegram, uh, United Press International, American Press International, they sent out this, this press release that Einstein did it. And they coronated him king. They had this huge party in London. Everyone was there. All of the biggest scientists of the time 
were there. And they basically crowned him king because he was correct. And the next morning, once that headline hit all the papers around the world, Einstein does it, Einstein woke up a celebrity. And it's been Einstein, Einstein's world ever since. That's what actually happened to, to the electric universe theory and anything that has anything to do with that. It just kind of died off because Einstein's new, Einstein's new theories brought us to a whole new age. Uh, it, it brought us, well, it didn't really bring us quantum physics. It helped bring us quantum physics, although Einstein really didn't like quantum physics because it was too messy and they were still no, they were still not a theory of everything. But Einstein brought us uh, the theory that created the, the atomic bomb and our, created our modern world. So, so we live in a paradigm that was built uh, back in 1950. Now, what's really fascinating about this whole topic is, is that there were people in the late 19th century and early 20th century that argued that, no, our universe is electric. The whole electromagnetic field property is extremely important in astrophysics. And actually, it is. It's still important to this day because our planet, the life on our planet is as it is because we have a very powerful electromagnetic field around our planet that protects us from everything bad out there. Okay. I, I so, still don't understand. So, I mean, I understand the rotation of the planets now. But right. how did they change? Well, if you want to go back to the very beginning, the ancient Egyptians say that the sun was born out of the watery abyss. That's a difficult one, isn't it? How can yeah. sunshine be, be, be born out of water? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, it, it kind of reminds me of the first time that I, that I ever read Egyptian myth. This is going back about, about 25 years. Uh, the first time I really started reading it, I, I could not make heads or tails of it. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was like Ra is the sun god. Uh, Osiris is is a god too, and he's sort of the real god. <laughs> and then there's a sphinx, and then and that then that, that was about it. Well, uh, we're getting to we're getting to. Uh, some serious science here, some serious, some serious electric universe science. Um, and there are watery nebulas out in space. This is an actual scientific fact. Uh, there's nebulas out there that have water in them, that have all the elements available to make water. Well, Astrophysicists that look at radio, that look through radio telescopes, they can see this better, better than anybody. 
because what their radio telescopes actually pick up is the frequencies that are given off by electrical current. And the, the pictures are available on the web. Uh, you can Google up uh, electric universe radio telescope photo of the universe. And if you do, what you will see looks like someone's neural pathways in their brains because everything's connected. It, it, it just looks like spider webs everywhere. And, and then this is actually electricity. The problem is we can't see it, okay? And uh -huh. I know that's, that's a strange thing to say. How can we not see electricity? Every time I saw electricity, it's, 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 it's bright white. It's, it's flashing. I mean, you, you can see it. You can see the spark jump from one place to another. You can turn the light on. You can see the light. You can see everything. Well, unfortunately, that's a very limited definition of the word electric and electricity. Uh, electricity does not actually glow, okay? It takes a certain number of things to make it glow. <clears throat> and I'm not a scientist, so I'm really trying hard to, to, to make it through this part. <laughs> uh, uh, plasma... Let's tell the audience what plasma is. Most people are familiar with, you know, gas, liquid, and solid, okay? Uh -huh. uh, a, a solid is the densest material there is, form of material there is. And when you start heating up a solid, it will become a liquid. And if you keep heating that liquid, it will become a gas, like hydrogen gas or neon gas, or helium gas, you know, everyone's familiar with that. Well, okay. if you keep heating, if you keep heating the gas, and, and what gas actually is, is let's take hydrogen gas because it's the easiest. Hydrogen is simply a, a proton that's positively charged and an electron that's ne negatively charged. That is a helium atom, and that's all it is. Well, if you heat that helium atom up even more, okay, at some point in time, the electron breaks away from the proton, and it's no longer an atom. It's a free-moving, positively charged proton and a free-moving, negatively charged electron, okay? And you yep. can't see it. It's, it's, it. it's invisible. There could be a huge cloud out there of hydrogen plasma, and you're not going to know that, it, that it's even out there. But if you apply electricity to it and more electricity to it, it starts to glow. And if you apply even more electricity to it, it starts to do really weird things, things that make the hair on my legs stand up because we're, we're, we are getting into the actual naturally occurring creation of our universe. 
when you put so much electricity into this big cloud of, uh, of ionized hydrogen and oxygen and whatever, if you put enough electricity into it, it starts to glow. And if you put even more okay. electricity into it, what was that? It was a ding-dong, and Marvel? I don't know where it came from. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay. You're, like you're, the, you're the tech. Yeah, it's... uh don't know what it is. <laughs> anyway. It's anyway, if you now. put even... It's gone? Okay. Anyway, if you, if you put even more electricity into this glowing nebula of oxygen and hydrogen and other elements, strange things start to happen. Magnetic fields automatically start to form, and you start to get tubes running through this nebula. And if you put even more electricity in, this, this nebula starts to become a glowing column of plasma. Okay? And if you put even more electricity into it, this glowing column of plasma that was once a nebula will actually start to pinch itself off magnetically. Okay? okay. So you got this big long you, you have this big long Tootsie roll of of energetic plasma, glowing hot white hot plasma. Okay, and magnetic fields are forming around it naturally. See, see, this is the big question. Where do these magnetic fields come from? Yeah. There's, there's, there's no answer. They, they just appear. Okay? okay? Anyway, anyway, you put enough electricity into this nebula, okay? You get this big, long column of plasma that starts pinching off. The, the, the scientists call this a Z-pinch, by the way. Okay? okay. What, happens, what, what happens is this, this, this great big column of plasma will pinch itself off every so often and create plasmoids, round balls of hot plasma in a series. Okay? Yeah. And each, each ball of plasma is connected to this current. So there's still current feeding these plasmoid balls. Okay? You put even more electricity into one of these plasmoids, guess what? You got a star. Uh-huh. Okay? You, you, you have a sun. Okay? And then, and, then, and then the other plasmoids around it can become star- stars also. It doesn't have to be the same the same grade level, they can be lower stars, you know, red dwarfs, brown dwarfs, or they can be rocky worlds or water worlds like ours. And bada-boom, bada-bang, there's your planets and your stars right there in a row. No big bang. So that's... So, so yes, there's, yes, yes there's, there's, there's no big bang. In fact, wow. this is... <laughs> I, I'm glad you said that word "big bang" because because it's it's, it's actually a, a very ironic theory. Uh, big bang is total faith. Big yeah. bang, the big the big bang theory is about as unscientific as you can get. 
It's it's, it's not well, science it, at all. Well, it, it's, it's science it's, creating a myth that that didn't have any foundation. That's all. That's correct. That's that's absolutely correct. There's well, how can you get? My youngest boy is is a physicist. He's a real live physicist with a, with a degree and everything. I have his uh, doctoral thesis up on my bookshelf, fell right next to my books, and and I asked him one time. This is about I don't know, ten years ago. I, I asked him one time, Thomas. So like, what existed before the Big Bang? You, you know what the answer is? What? <laughs> uh, that's not a valid question. And then I said, Thomas, come on, I'm your dad. What, what, what was before the Big Bang? And he said, okay, all right. If anything existed before the Big Bang, it has to be infinitely dense energy. And that's, that's, the, that, that's, that's the end of it right there. There, there's so, so uh, yeah, it's so, so the Big then, Bang now, then, you know. Are 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 you saying basically that that the quote unquote planets did not have an absolute um, pathway rotation? Um, they didn't have a um, that they they hadn't established their same their pattern of of where they are in relation to the sun. And so that they Correct. were still moving yes. around. What Correct. prevented them from crashing uh, into one another, or or did they, or are the rings of Saturn um, a moon that didn't make it through the transition? Well, there's there, there's actually a number of things going on, Barbara. Uh, if you look at our solar system right now, knowing what I know and and having some science that that I know. There's actually two different, maybe possibly three different solar systems in our solar system. Okay, there's the Saturnian system. Saturn has, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 moons. Uh Uh, There's the uh, Jupiter system. They've got, I think, even more moons than Saturn. And then there's Neptune, who, who, who is also a gas giant. They have like ten moons. Okay, Mercury has none. Venus has none. Mars has two moons, but you can't really call Mars moons because they're so small it's ridiculous. Okay, uh, Pluto doesn't have no moon, I don't think. Uh, so you know, only these gas giants have moons. Okay, Earth being the exception which is kind of mm-hmm. odd in and of itself because the moon is actually kind of important to to the stabilization of, of our planet. But right. if you look at it like that, if you look at it like that, you can say, hey, wait a minute. Jupiter was a wannabe star. Saturn was a wannabe star. And Neptune was a wannabe star. Okay, and they have their own, you know, little solar systems there and, and there. And of course, Earth was a moon of Saturn. Actually, inside Saturn's plasma sheath, we were we were actually protected. It was a paradise. It was it was eighty degrees all the time 
water, it, it never rained. The people who, who like the Bible will, will love this because when we were when we were actually a moon of Saturn inside their plasma sheath, it never rained. Uh, water would actually mist down from the sky because because Saturn was warm and the the hydrogen and oxygen could combine in the Saturn plasma sphere plasma sphere to create water that would gently you know it wouldn't rain down on it it would mist down on us so 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 13,000 years BC we were a moon of Saturn and that's why Saturn was our nighttime sun well at that time uh, Saturn was our sky period. Saturn became the nighttime sun after the plasma sheath was blown away and the great flood occurred and we received most of our oceans. Then Saturn became the nighttime sun. I, I Do you understand the difference? What? Uh, about, about the difference between when we were a moon of Saturn inside the plasma sphere and that Saturn did not become our our nighttime sun until after the plasma plasma sphere was gone and we were we could see the stars do you, do you see where I'm going with that yeah I think so it it just um it's a lot to to you know swallow i mean i, I it's all I, new. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing one thing that I am curious about, there was um my late husband Patrick Cook talked about the fact that the earth at one time had a double atmosphere. Um and that 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 one of the atmospheres went away when when there was a change and I'm wondering if that has to do with the plasma field. Yes. Yes, yes, correct. Uh, here's a really good way to explain it. Okay, <laughs> we live in a plasma sphere right now. Okay, uh-huh. we live inside the sun's heliosphere, which actually goes goes on beyond Pluto. Okay, the problem is we can't really see it. It's, it's not visible. It yeah. is electric, and it is magnetic, and this is what keeps all of the eight planets plus Pluto and all the comets, too. That's what keeps us in orbit around the sun is this heliosphere, okay? But uh-huh. our sun is a very bright sun, a very strong sun. With Saturn... uh as a star, when Earth was a moon of it, was not nearly as strong as our sun now, okay? So uh, the plasmosphere around Saturn was dense. We were actually inside. You can think of it like this. When we were a moon of Saturn, we were actually inside the star itself, because at that time, Saturn is what they call a brown dwarf star. We were inside. So, yes, we had two atmospheres. We had our own atmosphere, which, which is our own magnetic field, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we had the firmament outside of our atmosphere that encompassed us and Mars and Saturn. And this was mostly water. This is where the idea comes from. And, you know, God said, uh, let, uh, let there be a firmament above, and let there be a separation between the waters above and the waters below. Uh-huh. That's, that's where that comes from. So your, your, your late husband was correct. They're, they're, we were in a double atmosphere. Yes, that's, that's true. So, so at this particular point in time, there seems to be a stability of sorts. Yes, extremely stable. What, yeah, okay, so what created that stability and what are the chances of an instability occurring again? Uh, occurring again, let, let's do the last question first. Occurring again, what would have to happen to really mess things up good for us is our solar system is actually moving through space. Mm-hmm. We're not standing still. We're actually moving through space at 66,000 miles per hour. Our, our entire solar system is on a, tra- is, is on a trajectory. Now, if some... If if we were coming close to some monster-sized star, I mean, like a whole lot more powerful than our sun, that would create problems because everything is electrical, uh-huh. and in space, in space, all bodies are electrical. All celestial bodies are electrical, and there is no ground. So what happens? <coughs> What happens when a new uh, electrical body is in- introduced into a system is all elements of that system, all planets of that system, they have to equalize their charge with the newcomer. This is actually what happened to our solar system uh, 15,000 years ago because uh, what happened is and this is my guess, this is my idea right now, Uh, Jupiter was also a star just like Saturn. And Jupiter and Saturn had to negotiate their charges. And Saturn, which is actually a smaller gas giant than Jupiter, Saturn had to give up some of its atmosphere to equalize its charge okay that started things off but it got worse because you know this 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 string of stars being born is is still occurring so then our own sun gets born at 13,000 BC okay and creates which is and it is an even stronger star than Jupiter. So this is what creates the mess. It is, it is, is that you have two stars that, that, are, that are low power stars and then you have another star that's a very high power star. So these three stars, they have to equalize their charges between each other so they can 
be peaceful so they can coexist peacefully. And this is where 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 we get the, the planets having to find their peaceful orbits around the sun. Mm-hmm. What okay. about what about solar flares now? That that creates electronic charges. That creates EMP surges. That create that's an sure, electrical. Sure does. Yep. Um, and an electrical anomaly, let's say. So that when That's when correct. there are solar flares that are sent out in all directions, does that not disturb the balance that, that the planets now have? It it at this time it does not disturb the balance at all. Uh, it creates problems. Uh, it's what. What would have to happen to the sun to to disturb the? Well, our sun would have to go nova to actually disturb the balance. Okay. But 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 for what you are saying is true, and going back uh, three thousand years plus, uh, that was occurring all the time. And in, in, in fact, uh, before uh, the sixth century BC. Our sun was was still very powerful, and this is my take on it. Uh, when our sun was born fifteen thousand years ago, it was extremely energetic and caused mm-hmm. lots of problems. Okay, but since then, our sun has calmed down to where today, uh, I I don't think there is an aurora borealis. And, and and the the southern one too. I don't think that happens every single night. I'm not sure about that, but it it does happen on a fairly re- regular basis, and it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, it's it's pretty. It's beautiful. It's green. It's red. It looks like waving waving curtains. Uh, you know, it, from 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 outside the planet, it kind of looks like a crown. And then that's actually what it is. It actually looks like okay. a crown on, on the top of our planet. And that's actually where the crown comes from. That's actually where the monarchy crown that we are accustomed to, that's what that crown is. It's actually an aurora. That's where they got the idea. Okay? So, because, because the planets were gods. Yeah. So So then if you go back in time... Um, where there was this instability, um, I, I think I think I, I think someplace in your book you said that that um, people were seeing aurora borealis, you know, much closer to the equator even. Um, and that's correct. That, that, that's in recent history. Well, uh, you know, our, and it, it, our, it only happened a couple times. Our, now I've. I used to live in Minnesota, and we would see the northern lights there pretty frequently. Um, and in sixty, uh, wait, seventy-five, I was I flew to um, Iceland, and we flew through the aurora borealis, which was really cool. Oh, how cool! Yes, I was very. It danced across the wings. It was just amazing. Of course, yeah. time I thought we were going to die, but it was in retrospect, it was very pretty. Um, 
so right. so so the the Egyptians and the Sumerians, those that were keeping records and watching the sky, were and and the the other thing is that our our North Pole has shifted and and a, a number of times actually, and so it may have put Egypt into a place where where it would it would see these kind of things in the sky happening and it, i i know in a lot of in a, in a lot of the material you know they they talk about the sky being you know different and seeing um snakes eating their tails and all sorts of things and and they they have even a prognostication table as to when you see this then this happens so so their records, while while we may think them flights of fancy, were actually very accurate. Correct, they were. That's the amazing part, right there. Is is the the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, and Babylonians? They actually made it a practice to watch the sky. And you know why? They were scared to death. <laughs> that's that's why yeah. they were watching the sky. <laughs> they, they were scared to death because because what happens when when a planet comes close to us, uh, there, there's huge problems. Uh, well, as I say, the, the coming off the top of my head, Venus and Mars were the last two huge problems that we had. Venus was a big problem in uh, around uh, the 1300 B.C. area. Venus was a huge problem. And then in the, the 7th, century, 7th century and 6th century B.C., Mars was the huge problem. And, 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 and actually, Homer wrote about Mars. This is what uh, Ulysses is. This is what what the, the, the Iliad is. This is this is he, he's he's actually telling two stories at the same time. He's talking about a war at Troy, and he's also talking about a war in the heavens. And mm -hmm. and people have always thought that the the war the the Trojan War was the real thing, and the thing in the heavens was the fictional thing and i'm starting to think that it's actually the reverse that that he was using the trojan war to actually talk about the celestial war in the heavens so so uh yes. yeah what it, that's what it so must have when, looked like yes 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 because because it was it was it, it was uh it, it was horrible uh I have a book right here on my desk called uh, Oh uh, Fossil Legends of the First Americans. It's an academic book. It's it's published by Princeton University Press. Uh, but a a uh, a lady. What what is her name here? Uh, that's important to give out. Adrian Mayer. She she wrote a book on the fossil legends of the North American Indians, the, the Native Americans. And do you know what the Native Americans say killed the mammoths? Lightning. Lightning. Oh. Now, we're not talking about ordinary lightning. We're talking about planetary lightning. When, when, when Venus or Mars or, or let's say Jupiter 
would come close to Earth. Uh, the the electrical charge would have to be equalized, so therefore there 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 had to be a plasma discharge from one planet to another. It's 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 the same principle as kissing your spouse goodbye, dragging your feet across the carpet during the winter time. Okay, uh-huh. you're dragging your feet across the carpet, and you're actually building charge in your body. See, our bodies are electric just as much as the planet is electric, just as much as, as the star is electric. This whole electric universe thing is totally scalable. Everything is electric. The oh, yeah, our, brains, is, our brain waves are electric. Right. That's, that's correct. The difference is the scale. Our scale here as, as really tiny creatures on this planet, our scale is so small it just doesn't compare. But the example is still there. When you drag your feet across the living room floor to kiss your spouse goodbye in the morning or evening or whatever, you build up that charge in your body from, from the static. And then when you kiss your spouse, you can, sometimes you can actually see that, that, that spark jump off your lip to his or her lip. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the exact it's, it's the exact same principle. It's, it's the exact same principle with with thunderstorms. Okay, the charge builds up in the sky, and the charge here on, on the surface is is much lower. And the greater the charge in the sky, it has to equalize itself. So you get a big lightning strike. This is the same principle you apply to the planets. So when you have Venus coming by us, that's really close by us. It has to equalize that charge. So what happens is we get a great big giant lightning strike from Venus to Earth. Jupiter, Zeus, he's the one known for the for the thunderbolt. That was his big weapon. Uh-huh. Okay, it's, it's the same principle. The difference is planetary lightning. We're talking lightning strikes that are five ten miles wide that are sustained lightning strikes that actually turn into arcs. And and an arc is a su- sustained lightning strike, such as a welder. Yeah. Uh, I've, welded be- I've welded before, and once you touch that stick to the metal, you have that arc, and you can't see if, if, if you don't have a, a shield on your face. That what was going on, and that's what the Native American Indians say killed the mammoths was lightning and the thunderbirds. The thunderbirds weren't real birds. A lot of people want to think they were real birds, and I kind of do. I kind of want to think they're real birds too, in in some way, shape, <laughs> or form. But they're not. Uh, that was the Native American Indians' way of explaining how how all these huge lightning strikes were killing people and animals. It's, so, it's, it's, it, it's like in a light bulb, you've got those two points. And correct. the And the electric charge goes between the two and creates light. That's correct. And if you cut that connection, there is no more light. Huh. That's, that, that's the... That's the that's it. That's it. That's it in a nutshell right there. It's, it's actually a really simple thing. It's really a simple phenomenon. 
and it works no matter where, where you go. And and it's 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 elegant because right now, from what I understand about science, they have to have like a dozen different explanations for a dozen different types of stars. Well, in the electric universe, in the in the electric universe, there's only one explanation. It's just a function of how much energy. The more energy you have into a system, the brighter the star is going to be. This is why, this is why Earth, as a moon of Saturn, which was a brown dwarf star, is a place now where astrophysicists are starting to look for life, because it's an ideal situation for planets to form and for life to form on those planets. Of course, the big uh-huh. mystery, if you, if, you, if, you, if, you want to, if you want to get real mystical, where did the DNA come from? <laughs> that's, that's, oh, we, uh, even, go, even go further, where did the uh, RH negative factor come from? Yeah, yeah, it came from aliens or something like that. I don't know. But, but as, far, as far as the DNA goes, the Egyptians knew it. Uh-huh. They didn't. They didn't call it DNA. Okay. <clears throat> the word that's been translated for us from the Egyptian language is germs. That's how it reads. So when you read the, the actual Egyptian text, the the translation is: We, the Egyptians, we knew that all the germs necessary for all life forms was in the water. Ah, okay. And so so this is this is where this is where it really gets mystical because you know, if Saturn is our host star and we basically were born alongside of Saturn within Saturn's plasma sphere, what well, we have the water of Saturn on our Earth, with 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 actually matches up. Uh, the problem with our oceans is 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 we don't have just saltwater oceans. We have sodium chloride oceans. Okay, so there's a touch of chlorine in with that sodium. And if you do your research on this, if you do your homework on this, there's great problems with it because there's really not enough runoff water from our continents that have a salt content in it to justify how salty the ocean is. And I've been to the ocean, and the ocean is really salty. It's really nasty. You you, you, you take a mouthful of it, it, it's like taking a salt shaker and just dumping that whole salt in your mouth. It's 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 it's, it's pretty pretty severe. But Oh, yeah. But the chlorine and the salt in our oceans kind of matches up with the atmosphere of Saturn. So, you know, I, this is why this is why chapter three or four in my book, you know, I'm talking about the mystery of El. This is the original biblical god of the patriarchs. His name was El, E-L. Yeah. That was his short name. His long name was Elohim or Eloha. They call them L. Well, this is why L is Saturn. Saturn was 
actually, literally, God. It's true. Buy my book when it comes out in in, in a a year and a half, and and you can read all about it. Wow. Yeah, I wonder, you know, your book, there's so much that you have covered in the book that it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. You get into, I mean, the the plasma stuff, and then the um, astrology stuff, and then you know, it, there's just so much material here. It's it's there is a flow to it, but um, you know, it's 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 overwhelming. The the amount of information that you've put into this book is just phenomenal. Um, well, that's just pent-up think- writer's writer's frustration. <laughs> That's well, what that no, is. I've I been, mean, you, I've been, I've been wanting to write this book since since 2013, and this is uh, 2021 now. I, I actually started in 2020, but no, this is this is like seven years of, of, of pent up frustration of, of wanting to write. Well, That's a lot. I know. Lot. I know. It's. I, I, but but I, I mean the 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 plasma stuff. I'm wondering how much of an understanding of the gas creating a light in a confined space, how much of that do you think the Egyptians knew? Because I've always wondered, haven't been able to figure it out, how they had how they had enough light in those tombs to make the paintings and not leave any right. carbon deposit right. in the wall. So right. did they have Correct. electricity yes. of some form? Yes. yes, I'm with you on that, Barbara. I'm with you. I spent a month in Egypt uh, in 2007. Uh, I've 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 been to all the pyramids. I've even been to the to the three forbidden pyramids, and and yeah, it's it's the technology. The the I don't I don't even know what I don't even know what you want to call it. The know-how, the insight into nature behind the pyramids is. Is 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 mind-boggling. It's absolutely mind-boggling. So so if they can build the Great Pyramid and all those other pyramids, then there's probably not a whole lot they could not do. So uh, so so yeah, I, it's it's that's a that's a huge mystery because <laughs> those pyramids were built. Uh, I still, I'm still sticking with 10,500 BC. Yeah, uh, I think the pyramids. For, for the, you know, in, in my own personal belief system and philosophy, and it changes daily. But today, um, my feeling is that the pyramids themselves were built by another culture, <laughs> civilization, and the tombs a different time frame, because. The technology that went into the the uh, the pyramids themselves and a lot of and, and and you know Karnak and a lot of the other places was just so far in advance from anything that you see, and right. we can't recreate it. So uh, the, well, we the, can the, recreate it. We we can recreate the Great Pyramid. The problem is it will cost us. Four hundred and fifty billion dollars. 
Yeah. That's the problem. We would have to create special equipment and special machines. We'd have to invent that just to build the pyramid before we even built the pyramid. So, yeah, it's – it's. Uh, you got Scott Crichton coming up soon, don't you? Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Yes, I do. Okay, this is – this is this is a really good topic for for, for his book, uh, the uh, Great Pyramid Void Enigma. Uh, he's done some really good research. Yes, Scott, I'm plugging your book if you can hear me. Uh, <laughs> he's done some he's done some really good research uh, on the Great Pyramid that has to do with myth and legend. Okay. Ah. And I don't I don't want to spoil. Uh, spoil his his uh, his uh, his guest appearance coming up, but he does a pretty thorough job of of tracking down the myth and the legend about the building of the building of the pyramids. And and yes, they were built by human beings by the ancient Egyptians, if you want to call them Egyptians. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's this. We're getting into a very mystical, mysterious area here. That like how, how did these people? X. Yeah, yeah, correct. Civilization X. That's that's what I called it uh, in, in my previous books. It's 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 yeah. It's and 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 and, and seriously, I don't have an answer for it. Uh, to this day. You, you know, uh, ancient Egypt 39,000, you, you have to remember, folks out there, I'm not putting forth fact. I'm putting forth some facts, but really mm-hmm. I'm putting forth a theory. I don't really know what the Great Pyramid was built for. I have some good facts about the water pump underneath it. That mm-hmm. that does pan out to be true. John Cabin did an awesome job on that. And it certainly looks like that they were leveraging the, the electrical current in the ground underneath the pyramid to do something with it. Uh, my uh-huh. theory is that they were using it for to create a a a uh, plasma bubble, a a, a low strength plasma bubble to to help fertilize their crops. This is proven science today. That, yep. that having these these, these low, low frequency and very low frequencies on your crops makes them grow better. That that but that's just my theory. Okay, I I really don't know what they were doing with the end product of the Great Pyramid. It could be a number of things. Oh, okay. it probably is. Um, and it, one it, thing it, you, it probably is. Yeah, one thing you did go into which which you 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 gave a possible explanation of something that that I have wondered about for a long time and that's how the Egyptians um they they thought you know they were under the impression I guess that the world was flat because that's all they could see and how they took that 180 degrees and divided it into 12 sections and and they became you know, basically the months and or the astrological houses. You want to go into that because this this was fascinating to me. Uh, that was the Mesopotamians. That was the Assyrians that came up with the 360 oh, okay. degrees. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Do you know how many times I had to read that to get it? <laughs> it was, I think I think I had to read it six times. Yeah, it, it was it was it was a real well because my mind wasn't accustomed to thinking like that, 
and neither one neither is anyone else's for that matter but mm-hmm. they understood that there were two different sets of coordinates there was one for earth and there was one for the heavens okay and they were like opposites of each other so the celestial west had a counterpoint with like the terrestrial east and and vice versa uh but there was only one north mm-hmm. and this north northern point was a very special point because this is where the gods were and everything was focused on that point and you know even 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 right now when i think about it it's it still makes my head hurt <laughs> it, it it really does but it's well see the the problem is they thought their mindset was totally different than ours and if you understand where they came from it gets easier to understand because that's all there was in the beginning the land was flat and there was a dome over the sky mm-hmm. and everything was to the north Saturn the god in the sky Saturn was to the north and that was it and they had a west and they had an east but south was nowhere and the gods lived to the north mm-hmm. which I I I I know I, I, seriously I I still struggle with with those concepts before but that's that's what they thought and did I answer your question kind of but at one point they took that 180 degrees from horizon to horizon from east to west and they divided it into 12 sections and they became the, the zodiac then? the zodiac yes okay 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 yeah that's not the egyptians that was okay. the assyrians and and babylonians how they came up with how they came up with that uh you know, it's it's why didn't they use ten like the Egyptians or why didn't they use twenty? Why twelve? Uh why three hundred and sixty degrees? Uh it's that's I basically in the book I'm just reporting what they did. I I I won't really pretend to understand why they did it, but it's it's just the fact that they did it. I know it's well, not I much of an fact, answer. Well, I loved the fact that that in some of the um it almost translated into the different seasons and places and it was like during this particular time this is when the bulls mate and so that became Taurus. Correct. And Correct. So, so, Correct. Yes. So that, that's where the the astrolog, astrological signs came in. And I've often wondered, you know, where and why and how and they <clears throat> they related it to ba- basically um nature and natural um occurrences 
that Correct. happened during those time yes. frames. Yes. So, so yes. to me, that it, it, it just, you know, that now was I one of my... Now I know what you're talking about. Yes. Okay. I was getting two different concepts confused. I, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yes. Yes. Uh, this is when, when, when the plasma sphere that surrounded Earth and Saturn uh, was, was blown away and, and we could see stars and uh, the golden age had begun. Uh, there was actually two golden ages. There was the golden age when Earth was a moon of Saturn inside that plasma sphere. And then there was, and, and, and that was the, the reign of Ra. And then there was a secondary uh, golden age uh, after the plasma sphere was gone under Osiris as the agricultural golden age. Most people don't understand that there's two different golden ages. So, yeah, we're talking about the golden age where, where Osiris was now the, the primary god. And farming had become, uh, well, necessary because our planet was no uh-huh. longer a, a, a paradise planet where you had a fruit tree everywhere. And, and, and they had to farm. And they, and they had seasons. And, and so, yes, they, they were looking at the sky and and they were coordinating uh different different constellations with certain times of the year so they could start marking time again this is where saturn becomes the father of time because because when when saturn uh stopped being the brown dwarf that it is and became the gas a gas giant that it is now this is when we could finally see stars before you couldn't see them because well, there was there was water above us, and there was that plasma sheet, and there was there was really nothing to see. So yeah, that's that's, that's what they started doing, and and yeah, it was it was it was actually a naturally occurring thing. It was actually a functional thing, uh, because because and you know that's that's what they did. And you know uh, the, the strangest thing is the constellation Virgo the Virgin. Okay, that has to do with the harvest. Yeah. They had young maidens out there harvesting the corn or wheat or whatever they were growing, and that's how you know. I, I don't know. I, I'm not big on on astrology and the zodiac, so I don't I don't know much beyond uh, Pisces and Aries and Aquarius. That's right around me. Uh, I'm Pisces, <laughs> uh, but but that's in the fall, the September October uh, Virgo is. That's when the maidens go out and harvest the wheat. Yeah. And the same thing with when when lambs were dropped. That's when the ram came in. Yep. Um, so so that you know I and and I I guess they 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 were able to configure in their mind's eye stars that would make up that particular symbol that became the zodiac. I right. would guess. And I don't- Yes, yes. Uh, so, some of those are more pertinent than others, like the lion. Uh, the yeah. lion actually existed before the zodiac because the lion represented the roaring heat of the sun. Ah, okay. And 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 this is possibly why the the lion is the oldest. Uh, one of the oldest uh, gods that are out there, the lion, the hippopotamus, 
those two are actually probably the oldest that, that I know of. The hippopotamus was was a, and I, I think it's really beautiful that it was a hippopotamus because the ancient Egyptians knew that that water was extremely important. That us human beings are actually water creatures. Mm-hmm. The human form, the human form, has more in common with water mammals than any other animal on this planet. It's really bizarre. Have you ever heard of uh, the aquatic ape theory, Elaine Morgan? No. Oh, you got to look that up. It's not really her theory. The theory actually goes back to 1942, but she's the one that made it popular in, uh, I think, the early 80s when she wrote her book. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the, the human condition has more in common with water, with, with water mammals than any other animal. Uh, we don't have hair on our bodies. We have oil in our skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, women. Well, well, in gestation, you know, we float in ambiotic fluid. So. Yes, that that's true too. Our our babies, when 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 new human beings are born, they have no fear of water. Okay. And not only that, but this there's, is, there, there's. There's also a, a point in, in the growth process where we have gills. That's true, too. And the our hair follicles, the way our, our human hair kind of flows back to the head, I mean, I mean mm-hmm. some of it does flow forward because you can't help it, but just in general, the longer your hair gets, the more it flows to the back. Well, yeah. this is how little babies would hold, hold on to their moms in the water. They'd grab their hair, and they would tag along. And and then there's the female hymen, okay? Okay. In the uh, vaginal canal, there is a, a layer of skin over the opening. Only water mammals have that. Huh. So we've got to be water mammals. Well, we're all over the place you know. here. We're talking about we're, we're talking about uh, Egypt and the hippopotamus. Yes, it's 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 really uncanny how the ancient Egyptians could see in nature that the very first mother goddess was a hippopotamus, and she gave birth to everything. Now, why it's like that is because they understood it had to be a water mammal to give birth to everything. So it was a hippopotamus and not something else. It's, their insights into nature is ingenious. And I'm thinking that they understood the electrical principle. And they knew how to manipulate nature to use that electricity in some way, shape, or form. Now we're getting back to the Giza power plant and the pyramid that you know they they knew something yeah. there. It's just it's just lost to history. Well, and and irrigation and all sorts of stuff. I mean, they had stuff that that was, you know, it took us many many hundreds thousands maybe of years to figure it out ourselves. So they there, there was a link to the past that was really quite profound that they seemed to have. Um, 
been able to pass information forward to a point in time, and then and then something happened and everything went dark. Catastrophe. There's there's uh, this is the very last chapter of the book which I haven't even written yet. But there's actually a series of catastrophes. Uh, the first catastrophe is in 13,000 uh, BC. This is this is this is the Great Flood. This is the this is the, the deluge. This Which is one? Uh, there are two. This is the first one. The second okay. one is not really a deluge. It's it's a catastrophe, but it's been it's been mis misinterpreted. And now since you got me on to this, I'm gonna go ahead and just throw it out there for the audience. Uh, okay. The second deluge, which most people think is the Great Deluge, happened uh, 3,200 B.C. And the problem is the word for deluge was mistranslated from the Hebrew. This is a Hebrew thing, not an Egyptian thing. was mis- okay. mistranslated from the Hebrew to English. Uh, that word, and of course it's a, it's a it's a foreign word. Uh, I can't remember how to pronounce it, but it's uh, mubal or something like that. M u b b a l. Uh, it's actually referring to the melting down of scrap metals to be reused. So, the actual literal Hebrew for the Noah's flood, they're actually not really talking about a flood of water. They're talking about a catastrophe that did a lot of melting of earth. Is what they're actually talking okay. about. And and it it, it, was, it it was a catastrophe. Okay. Are, are you talking but, asteroid strike or something like that? No, I'm talking about uh, the planet Venus. Is what I'm actually talking okay. about. Okay. The uh, Venus, the planet, is actually the devil. Actually, literally, the devil. That's the source okay. of the devil. This is coming out of. Uh, it's not just coming out of, of Egypt. In Egypt, too, calls it the Morning Star. But I think it's Jeremiah calls it, uh, or is it Isaiah? Uh, it's a great big chapter in, in the Old Testament. Uh, Lucifer, oh, you, uh, how how brilliant you are, morning star. You thought you would uh, put yourself above the throne of God, and you've been stricken down with two-thirds of the stars came down with you, uh, beautiful mm-hmm. morning star. Uh, you know, that word Lucifer is... Is, is Latin, and it's actually referring to the planet Venus. And what happened, and uh, what happened in 1400 BC or thereabouts? Some people say 1500, some people say 1300. I think some people even want to want to put it at 1600. But it's 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 actually the first intermediate period of ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt has three intermediate periods. And what's really interesting about these, what they call intermediate periods, do, do you know what that is? What they call an intermediate well, period? That would be between golden ages. 
No, no, that's not what I'm talking no? about. Uh, okay. No. Uh, the, the Egyptologist has it set up. There's the Old Kingdom, and then yeah. there's the Middle Kingdom, and then there's the New Kingdom. Okay? Right. Well, between the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom, there was an intermediate period. And that is a politically correct term. Because what the intermediate period actually is was complete chaos and disaster. In other words, we had a close encounter with a planet, and we had a huge catastrophe, physical catastrophe, where a lot of people got killed and a lot of things got torn up, and civilization broke down. Okay, so there's the old kingdom, and then catastrophe, and then uh, after the catastrophe's over, they get back on track and create the Middle Kingdom. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the Middle Kingdom ends with the second intermediate period, which is actually disaster again in the same way, shape, or form. Okay. And then they get over that, and then, then they create the New Kingdom. And then at the end of the New Kingdom, this is, this is the 6th century or 7th century, at the end of the New Kingdom, there's another catastrophe, another intermediate period. And then you start with the Greek and Roman uh, region of ancient Egypt history. So, so, so there's th- three catastrophes right there. And Dr. Shock uh, puts another, he calls it the Dark Age. And we're talking oh, 8,000 B.C. to like 5,000 B.C. He calls, it, he, he, he calls it the Dark Age. There was a lot of solar activity going on. In that in that time period there, that so so there was catastrophes happening all all the way from 13,000 BC all the way down to the sixth century, which almost takes us to modern times, because after after the sixth century BC, then you have Greek Greece coming up and being a a, a world power, and you have the beginnings of philosophy and literature the way we understand philosophy mm-hmm. and literature. So, so yeah, it's, 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 kind of, it's, it's kind of spooky how close these catastrophes come to our own civilization. But the point I'm getting to is, is, is that because of all these catastrophes in a row, uh, there was no one to carry forward the truth and the technology. Now, what's amazing to me is the philosophy, the original philosophy of the ancient Egyptians going back 10, 15, 20,000 years has made it all the way through to now. And it, it, it's, it, it has to do with being human because people have been fascinated with ancient Egypt since like, I don't know, 1820? Yeah. It, it was... It, it, it was a huge thing in Europe during the Victorian times. It, it was just absolutely huge. Uh, uh, people, rich people, were giving money for other people, scientists and archaeologists, to go to Egypt and do all these digs. It was, well, people wanted to know. They found something really cool and they wanted to know. And they still do to this day. Hence, I'm on the radio talking about it. Yeah. And writing books about but, it. But, I mean, it's just people in my life. What really gets to you, I mean, we we know Egypt in these time frames had the, experienced these 
disasters. Were these were these quote unquote disasters these these incredible? Were they global or were they basically just to that particular part of the world? Uh, they were global. Okay. Uh, of course, other areas were hit harder than others, depending on the specific catastrophe. Uh, the biggest catastrophe was at the what the so-called end of the ice age. The, you know, the, the 10,000 BC, 9,000 BC, 13,000 BC. Yeah, that that first 4,000 years of, of of the solar system trying to become stable. Uh, that that was the worst because oh oh let's see what's the actual fact ninety uh, percent of all mammals alive that weighed more than three pounds became extinct so there was there was a lot of death all the way around the world but the important part and this helps answer your question of that. Catastrophe 12,000, 13,000 years ago, ground zero was North America, specifically the Great Lakes region. And again, this is, a, this is another answer to history. Okay, When Westerners came over to the North American continent, they found a sparsely populated, pristine wilderness. question is why? The answer is, everyone got killed 15,000 years ago. <laughs> That's why. And the mammoths and the bison and everything else, too. And the horses, everything. Yeah, it's... It, uh... Yeah, it just... Um, now, the, young, the Younger Dryas period was woken up because of a, an asteroid strike or... or um, I thought. No, I that. thought that too for a while. It, that that doesn't appear to be the that doesn't appear to be the case. Although it is possible, uh, I, it's w with the instability of the solar system and having planetary encounters. I mean, I mean, it, it stuff gets blown off, stones come down. I mean, it 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 could have been a big chunk of Venus coming down. Well, this is this is this is you're talking about 9,000 BC. So it, it could have been a great big chunk of Jupiter uh, that that got blown off, or some other planet that got blown apart, and we were getting hit with debris. It doesn't have to be a planetary site. I, I mean, there, there's a lot that goes with the the close encounter with planets. You know, debris does fall to Earth. Uh, well, and, and, so and, and, and in fact, that's how some of the Mars rocks got here. Yeah. Well, so these three these three instances that you you've spoken of um, were they all a result of the solar system not being stable, or was there another yes. cause? No, they were, they were all a result of the solar system being in, unstable. That's correct. Wow. And and uh, the the and and what the problem is is uh, crazy different or crazy different orbits. And this actually gets into Homer and uh, his books, The Odyssey, The Iliad, and, and, and all that. Uh, the, the mythology is Mars was the savior. Mars prevented Venus 
from destroying Earth, which is actually true. Mars actually ran interference with Venus. This is this is not long ago. This is the seventh century BC. Mars ran interference for Venus and actually protected Earth from being totally destroyed. But what was going on with Venus is Venus was in one of these cometary orbits, a very elongated orbit. So it was going way out there and then coming in and going way out and coming in. And I believe it was 50 years was the problem. Uh, this is going back to the Hebrew prophets, that how they understood the time scale what was going on because they were watching the skies too uh, yeah. that Venus was what, uh, Venus was coming at Earth once every 50 years so so that's you know to, for 50 years to, to make one path around the sun in 50 years that's a really long strange oblong oblong tra trajectory yeah so yeah. so that's what happened there Okay, because, you, know, you know, you are, this is a totally new paradigm. It's going to be fascinating to see how people warm to it. Um, you know. Well, it, 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 it's, yeah, it, it, it depends who you talk to. Yeah. Uh, uh, people that are more mainstream, uh, they're not going to like it. People that are truth seekers that, you know, are, are, are looking for things are probably going to like it a lot more. Uh, that's that's kind of the, the way it goes. I know the Electric Universe guys, uh, I, I watch their stuff on a regular basis. I have been for many years. Uh, they, had one of, they had one of the skeptics. Uh, they invited one of the skeptics to one of their conferences, and it didn't go well. <laughs> it just it just didn't go well. Oh, what are you guys doing? You're saying Einstein's what? wrong. You're saying there's no such thing as black holes. You're saying electricity has everything to do with everything. Oh, come on, guys. This is settled science. No, I'm sorry. There's no such thing as settled science. No. <laughs> um, no, but, but it it makes sense. And and certainly it it certainly I mean we are so far from you know the Big Bang theory that you know a Big Bang didn't happen and and it makes more sense to me that it was more of a galaxy planetary type of experience what happened right. that that you know it, it to me that makes more sense um, yeah. You have to you have to absolutely take a religious concept out of the whole thing and just look at yes, you okay. Do. I, yes, I yep. it it um you, know, you can weave myth in there with you, know, you you can probably make a religious whatever for it but 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 that's what happened. People took these natural occurrences. They didn't have an understanding for exactly what was happening. So they created a war in the sky. They created gods and goddesses. They did all of this to kind of understand to a point what was going on. And right. and uh, right. I, I think what happens is, all true. is <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. Well, well, the reality is, but but not necessarily the meaning of it. 
But I mean, I love the fact that you know, you know, the planets became gods and goddesses, and so their behavior and their interaction and the things that happened and you know, it, it the story does reflect the actuality, but people get lost in the story and forget that you're talking right. about a planet, right. not a person. I'm going to defend the planet being a person here. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a scientist by the name of Rupert Sheldrake? Actually, yes. Okay, I'm a big fan of. Yes, I I I am a big fan of Rupert Sheldrake. He is well known for his dialogues with Terence McKenna during the late 1980s and 1990s. He is an Uh Oxford. He is an Oxford biologist, Oxford University. He is the cream of the cream of the crop, and uh, he is a truth seeker. And he actually has gone on record saying that he believes the sun is conscious. Not in the way that we're conscious. Uh Nonetheless, the sun itself is a conscious being. And I would like to use that as a platform for what has upended me most of all in this project I'm working on for the past year and a half is what I'm working on has pretty much nullified all all religion, okay? All religion, for truth, all religion is meaningless. Now... For, for for helping society, for helping people, for for creating a group, a support group, it's it's good. It's it's been a good thing. Yes, I'm I'm not going to deny that. Okay, it does have some importance in our society, but the actual truth of it all, all religion is made up. It's all made up. Now, the philosophies are different. Uh-huh. Buddhist philosophy is pure. Jesus philosophy is pure. Jesus philosophy is extraordinarily simple. If you don't oh, yeah. love if you don't love the people around you and take care of them, you don't love God. Loving loving the people is the same thing as loving God. Just love one another, folks. Hold hands, love yep. that's just that simple. Okay? But the truth of the matter is and this is the real spooky part, because the ancient Egyptians have their own understanding of where souls and life come from. Okay, mm-hmm. and 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 I'll go ahead and, and explain that right now before I get to to, to the last part of it. Okay, uh, prior to a thousand BC, the solar storm in our universe was so intense the auroras were so intense that they were not just auroras okay the Brooklyn currents coming in our north and south pole were so energized you could see them okay there's a mountain there's a mountain of light coming off the North Pole going up to the planet Saturn. There's this electrical, this huge electrical connection 
between Saturn and our planet, okay? And it was called the pillar. It's called the, the jet column. It's called the sycamore. It's called the world pillar. It's called the world axis. It's called the world tree. The ancient Egyptians and other African cultures of that time period also believed the same thing. They were convinced that the souls of people came out of that electrical current, that magnetic electrical current to create us, which makes me scratch my head because we people, even though it's a much smaller scale, we people are also electrical and magnetical, but just on a really low level. It's the same principle. And, and, and so it's, okay, I heard that. Now, the scary part is, who are we really? What are we really? What are we doing here? Okay? The ancient Egyptians <laughs> knew the importance of electricity. The ancient Egyptians knew that the water had all the germs or DNA for all life forms in it. And it, it certainly looks like to me our solar system and our planet is a whole lot younger than 4 billion years old. I, I, I really don't have any idea how old it is, but it may not be that very old at all. Now, I'm not going to get weird and say it's like made in seven days or anything like that. No. But it could be, <laughs> but, but, but it, it could be only 500 years old, or I mean 500,000 years old, or a million years old. With all the electrical stuff going on in our solar system during this during this time, I don't think you can use a lot of the scientific dating techniques that they're using and get away with it. Because the whole plasma ionization thing changes everything about the yeah. the complexion of, of our rocks and our soil and everything. Well, you know that carbon dating is only good for 40,000 years. Yeah. It, it's, it's really no good beyond that. So, so, so but, but to, to actually witness the birth of our son and write about it, and, and I have to think, what are we doing? Why Why was I born into this world and have to deal with society and get a job and and do this and do that and pay bills? And it, it's, why is this going on? And like the real truth, back behind the scenes, why we're here, what are we doing? No one even cares about. But getting to my point where I am right now, and this is truth. I don't care who you are, what you are. No one knows our true nature. We don't. Well, that's true. Yeah. We can say we do. We can we can speculate. I'm a huge dreamer. That's my pathway. Has always been my pathway to spirituality. I've been a huge dreamer. I've got a dream journal that's you know 500 pages long. Uh, and there's people that have, that have near-death experiences. Uh, there's people that yeah. have other kinds of other kinds of experiences. But at the end of the day, when you look at everything, you, you have to say to yourself, 
I really don't. I really don't know what my true nature is. What our true nature is as a, as a human being, we just don't know. Well this, well, this may not be our true nature. Exactly. That's the point I was getting I mean, to. Go ahead. Oh yeah. I mean, there's there's a spirit within us that is etheric that has no form, and so you know, being a human being is. You know, a, a stopover on a journey, and you know, I have my own philosophy on on where we go right, as a spirit. Right. Uh, right. Are, know, we, I, are I, we a school? Are we a playground? Are we a vacation? You no, know, I, I think I, I think we're we're tempering ourselves, and I believe that that the human spirit is on its way to become its own sun or its own source of creation. My point exactly, that's what the ancient Egyptians believed. Right there. Right yeah. there. Oh, oh, here, here, here's something really cool. It's, 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 it's right on this point. Okay. This is kind of a common understanding that the ancient Egyptians, when you died, uh, your spirit ascended to become a star, right? Most everyone knows that. Yeah. Okay, well, and everyone know everyone is familiar with the the, the book of the dead, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of one one of the biggest Egyptian books out there. And I just I just like to say there's not really one book of the dead. There's actually a whole variety of books of oh, the yeah. dead. What the book of the, what the book of the dead actually is is the ancient Egyptians would write down all these incantations or recitations. Some some people call them spells. They would write down all this stuff, and they would either put it in the coffin, hence the term coffin text, or they would put it in the tomb, hence books of the dead. But there was, there was yeah. many, many, of these, many of these different papyri that were used in tombs and, and coffins. And... Uh, the earliest Egyptologists were going through these papyri, and they were finding just in general, although each papyri was a little bit different because they were customized, they were finding that they all said the same thing, that that the deceased person would become a spirit, and then he would jump in the boat of Ra and go fly around the solar system with Ra and then become a star. Uh-huh. Well... That's always bothered me. It really always bothered me because it just sounds stupid. And and I don't think the ancient Egyptians even thought that way. I mean, these people built the pyramids. Uh, they carved the Sphinx. Their philosophy about human life is, is brilliant. And they think that that the sun actually goes around our planet and a dude becomes a star by hopping on the sun and, and going around the planet for, for one cycle? No. No. This is really cool. Uh, the actual title for most of these papyri that become the Book of the Dead, the actual title is going forth by day. For example, the, 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 the papyrus of Annie is the title of the, of the papyrus, and, but the actual title that the Egyptians put on it is going forth by day. And 
the Egyptologists would never use that title, Going Forth by Day, because, quite frankly, they hadn't a clue on what it meant. Yeah. They were, they were just dumbfounded. Well, Barbara, I know what it means now. I, I, know, I know exactly what it means. <clears throat> I've read this over and over and over and over, and the text is very clear. Uh, Saturn was still right above us to our north. And we were orbiting the sun together with Saturn. Okay, we were in tandem. Uh, our planet was rotating, you know, 24 hours is a day. And yeah. When you, would, when you would look up at Saturn, okay, the sunshine would create a crescent on one edge of Saturn. Okay? Are you with me there? So Just far. like the moon... Just like the moon has is, is a crescent, you know, it's yeah. part part of the sunshine's being blocked, and you only see a sliver. Well, we could see the whole planet from time to time, but like like during the daylight when it's really bright out, you only saw the sliver. At nighttime, you probably saw the outline of the planet and the sliver. But yeah. this sliver looks like a boat, an old style boat with a prow and stern, just like the ancient people used. It's, it's you know, crescent-shaped boat. Yeah. That's what they called it. That's what they called it. And what actually was going on was the deceased person was to become an Osiris. And after he was mummified, after the, the mouth opening and the ritual, and he was placed in the tomb... The belief was the deceased king's spirit body would awaken at night and would climb up the world pillar, which is our plasma pillar, yeah. and he would ferry over to the night boat. Okay? The night boat is when the Saturn crescent was at the bottom of the planet. And this crescent would move count, counterclockwise around the planet. When, when the crescent was at the very bottom, let's call it the south, because that's our point of reference, when the crescent was at the south, it was midnight. And the crescent would rotate counterclockwise. So as the sun, as the sun came up, the crescent was no longer tips pointing up. The crescent was tips pointing to the west. And as, as time continued, the crescent became the top of the planet. The tips were pointing down of the crescent. This is when we get to the day boat. Okay? And as it progresses further, the tips are pointing to the east. And this is when the sun is setting. Uh-huh. So what would happen... What would happen is the king's spirit would get on that crescent at nighttime, okay? And he would travel with Ra. Ra is Saturn, by the way. He would travel with Ra around the perimeter of the planet. And when it became day, okay, the deceased king 
would be jousted into the sky, into heaven to become a star. Now, How cool. the important part. Now, the important part of this is the title actually makes sense. The title is Going Forth by Day. Okay. Now, I need to add a few words to make that title make sense. Going Forth you by Day makes minutes. total sense. Yeah, you got three <laughs> okay. minutes. Going Forth by Day is what the Egyptians call it. To make sense to us, I've got to put a couple words in there. Going Forth by the Day boat to become a star. Wow. That's what it actually means. Perfect sense. Wow. We're just scratching we're just scratching the surface here, Barbara. This is so cool. Um I I can't wait to read the rest of the book and the next one to come, for sure. Um I got to tell you, this is spectacular. I, this is very exciting, and, and I'm so glad that you shared the, the manuscript with me so that we could talk about this and, and kind of give people an idea as to the material that is coming at them in, in you know, a year or so. And um, it's so exciting. It is a new paradigm, and um, you know, I, I and think I, it's going I'm to be. I'm not the only one either. There's, there's a lot of others. Oh yeah. No, but this this is very very cool. I I want to I want to thank you so much for for sharing it all with me and and the audience. And um, I'm going to keep in touch because this is this is going to be a lot of fun to follow. Yes, yes, we will have to do a series of radio shows. And I I only have three more chapters to write. Hopefully, I'm going to have these done in the next couple of months, and then it'll be off to the publishers. That's exciting. That's very exciting. And then, of course, you have to start all over again and do something else. Um, going to be interesting to see where you take it all. I, I really, we, we're down to seconds here. I want to thank you so much um, for sharing your wisdom and your information with all of us. It's really been uh, a profound honor. You're very welcome, Barbara. It's, it's, it's my pleasure. You're, you're an awesome talk show host. You really are. Ah. Thank you so much. Well, your material makes it real easy. <laughs> that, it's, it, it's just me. It's just, I, I mean, this was, this was one of my first questions when I was like 8, 9, 10 years old. Why are things the way they are? Well, you're, you're, you're getting some good answers for sure. Uh, <clears throat> so I've got to tie this up. I want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, please check this out. It will be up on YouTube. And if you uh, check out our channel and you like what's there, please subscribe. That's how we know you're there. So thank you, everybody. Tune in tomorrow night. Mark, Mark Eddy has an amazing show schedule for then. And we will be back again next week. Good evening, everybody.